This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. Good afternoon. My name is Brian Topher, Principal Architect of Topher Architecture, and you're listening to New Books Architecture, a podcast channel on the New Books Network dedicated to architecture and its publications. If you have any suggestions on authors who you'd love to hear me speak with next, feel free to send me an email at btopher at topherarchitecture.com. Today's guest is Alex Nathanson to talk about his book, A History of Solar Power, Art, and Design. Alex is a multimedia artist, uh, AV engineer, technologist, and educator whose work is focused on both the experimental and practical applications of sustainable energy technologies. So Alex, thank you very much for being here with me today and welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. So before we begin, can you tell the audience a little bit more about yourself? Sure. Um, so yeah, like like you said, I am a uh, uh, sort of interdisciplinary educator, designer, creative practitioner, um, working with technology, primarily focused on exploring a wide range of sort of um, niche applications of sustainable energy technologies, primarily solar power. So um, I do a lot of work with photovoltaics and design, photovoltaics and art, photovoltaics and education, um, photovoltaics and sort of user research, things like that. Um, and I've been sort of working in this space since since about 2014. Very interesting. And so, you know, to start off, as I said to you before we recorded, you know, I'm an architect. My background is architecture. So when I when I got this book, I, you know, I hear photovoltaics and I instantly think of how to optimally place and angle them on a roof. However, I know this is a very over, big overview of the entire book. There's significantly much more to photovoltaics than just mounting them to a roof. And so can you kind of walk us through that a little bit? Sure. Um, so photovoltaics, you know, the modern photovoltaic cell was invented in about 1954. And from the very beginning, designers and, and to a lesser extent, artists initially, but, you know, within a decade or so, um, artists as well wanted to start exploring this technology. Um, it both, you know, has all these like really interesting affordances that allow for sort of new design opportunities, but also there's a lot of um, sort of more abstract creative opportunities 
that can emerge from this technology. Um, and so, you know, in my book, I really wanted to try to document this history because it is um, not very well known. And, uh, you know, I, I sort of stumbled into this space um, as a practitioner first as an academic sort of second, where I realized like, oh, this is a really interesting space. People have been working in this space for decades, but there's very little, basically no interdisciplinary writing about this. Um, and so it, it seemed like a, a unique opportunity to be able to document this area. Um, yeah. And so, you know, you mentioned the history and again, I'll admit, I, I knew nothing about quite a bit what you talk about in here. You know, there's a lot of good case studies of installations and sculptures and art, but I think one that's worth discussing is uh, the, the do nothing, the solar do nothing machine by the Eames, you know, very famous architect designers. And again, I, I, I was not aware of this at all. So. Yeah. So that, that piece was initially created in uh, 1957 and then was sort of presented to the public in 1958. And it's essentially um, sort of a, a series of aluminum moving elements. It It's not quite a Rube, Rube Goldberg machine, but it sort of has that playful feeling to it. There's a lot of like motors and pulleys and, and sort of spinning aluminum shapes. And this was part of a program by um, the Aluminum Company of America, Alcoa, to invite a lot of sort of um, successful creatives to do something with aluminum as an advertising campaign. Um, and the whole idea was like, um, you know, look at the future of America and how bright it is. And of course, aluminum is a part of this, you know, exciting technological post-war future. Um, and so the Eameses, they made a, a, this mechanical piece that's powered by some solar cells. And one of the things that I find really interesting about this is, you know, at this time, um, 1958 is when the first satellite goes up into space that's powered by solar power. So it's this interesting moment of being both, you know, it's literally space age technology. The technology is extremely expensive at the time. Um, but designers see this sort of exciting possibility of like whimsicalness that can come out of this thing that seems like magic, right? We have the sun and all of a sudden we're sort of producing electricity from it. Um, and in that space, there's sort of a lot of excitement and sort of, um, I think, joy that happens. And they really pull that out with that work, right? Um, that's also the same time that like some, some initial um, consumer radios that were powered by solar power started being released to the public. Um, they would have been on the more expensive side, but still, I think, probably attainable for sort of a, a middle-class person potentially. Um, but it's also this sort of interesting moment of like, you know, you have high-end design, you have space age technology, and you have relatively accessible consumer goods, all sort of working with solar power um, and, and, and media, really. It's, you know, the satellites are using the solar cells to uh, power, um, you know, certainly radio technology, maybe also some sensors, the radios that are powered by solar at this time, obviously that's very much about media. And then, you know, the Eames's project is bringing in also a bunch of different sort of types of, of media and sort of technology as communication ideas. Um, and so it's sort of this special or maybe not special, but sort of this, this um, 
interesting space of associating this technology that we generally don't think of as being tied to media, um, but really is sort of intricately closely tied to it. And I want to come back to that. You had mentioned consumer electronics. And one thing that stood out to me was, you know, between the graphics and, you know, the, the pages dedicated to it, there seemed to have been quite a bit of consumer products, portable devices powered by solar power. Whereas, and again, this might just be my experience, it doesn't seem like nowadays there's that many. All I can think of is the calc, you know, the, the tiny calculator in school. Whereas it looks like at the at the beginning of this, there seemed to be quite a bit more of consumer stuff powered by solar. Yeah, there's, I mean, it's really the 70s um, where some consumer items start to emerge. The calculator is, I think, generally considered to be the beginning of sort of a, a quote-unquote more mature consumer market for this stuff because it becomes affordable, accessible, incredibly widely distributed. It's a fixture of all of our childhoods. I don't know when the last time I used a solar-powered calculator was, but certainly that was something that you know the junk drawer in my house had growing up, and I would have used it um, in math class and all that. Um, and then, then some solar-powered watches also sort of started to emerge at that time, but those two items are really the, that sort of is, those, those sort of hold down the sort of consumer solar industry. Um, they're really reliable, which cannot be said about a lot of consumer solar powered products, um, especially early on. Um, and, but, you know, just with sort of evolving miniaturization and digitization of electronics components, it allows these things to be powered with less energy, and then you can start to rely on available energy. And so that sort of opens the door for more things to be powered by solar. But a lot of it's gimmicks. A lot of it's like, you know, um, I don't know, like a little, um, I don't know, a fan, let's say a fan with, with um, on a hat that's powered by solar power, right? It's like not something that uh, anyone, you know, will wear beyond like the initial novelty Um right? Um, at best. And so I think that sort of is generally what we see. And there was a point in like in the 80s where it's debatable how much this actually impacted the economics of the industry. But um, there's a lull in the solar industry in the 80s, uh, partly brought on because of Reagan policies, um, disincentivizing sustainable energy. But in that sort of lull, um, there was a hope that uh, a um, consumer market would help continue to sort of make the solar industry more efficient and bring down costs and allow it to um, thrive in the U.S. I think that was mostly, you know, marketing folks wanting to bring people's attention to this. And I I doubt it had a notable impact on the economics of solar in the U.S. But um, that's something you find when you read like news reports from uh, from the 80s about, you know, tech um, tech conferences and things like that. That'll that'll pop up semi regularly. Yeah. Very interesting. And you mentioned, you know, it, the use in media and some other surprising applications. I think the one that stood out to me the most is you have a chapter on, you know, sound, the acoustic art pieces. Not something I would have instantly thought of when reading about solar power. And so, again, I know our listeners don't have the book in front of them yet, but could you walk through a couple of the some of the more interesting sound art installations that you describe very well in here? Sure. Um, yeah, so I mean, my background, I come to this as um, as a media artist, in part. And because of that, you know, as media artists, 
we're always sort of trying to think about, you know, not just how can we use technology to make something cool, but how can we use technology to express something, um, you know, either enable sort of unique aesthetic opportunities or maybe, you know, communicate some other idea. Um, and sound artists are really the first area of art making that really um, embraced solar power in a pretty pretty big way, um, which isn't to say it's widely known, right? I think if you ask somebody, even someone who is really aware of sound art, um, which is already sort of a niche thing, right? But, you know, they're not going to necessarily know about the history of solar power. But there are some um, uh, sort of early, some of the earliest artists working with solar power are sound artists. Um, and that's primarily because it doesn't take a lot of energy to make interesting sonic pieces. Um, you can, you know, use a lot of different techniques. So there's there's an artist uh, named Joe Jones who is just doing really simple things by connecting um, solar pa- solar panels directly to little DC motors that would have sort of uh, maybe strings or springs on the end of the shaft with you know, a ball or some other sort of object that would hit drums or string instruments. And, and it would have these... Um, sort of uh, random or quasi-random structures to it because the device is responding to available sunlight. So if it's under a tree and the wind is blowing the leaves, changing the shadows, that's changing the behavior of the motor, which is in turn changing the rhythm of the sound. Um, So there's there's pieces like that. And that stuff would be, um, he started working in the 70s but had sort of envisioned those projects as early as the mid sixties, but couldn't afford solar cells at that time. And so it took a little while for, for the prices to come down. Um, but once they did, uh, sound artists started exploring this stuff. Um, so yeah, there's, I mean, there's a few different techniques. I mean, that is sort of, you know, the Joe Jones technique is a very sort of acoustic technique, but there's also people working with synthesizers. There's folks, um, sort of transducing, solar energy directly by just plugging solar cells directly into an amp and um, making audible the various frequencies of light. And something like that works maybe really well without in, in artificial light. So, you know, there are um, uh, projects um, where that are sort of about exploring the psychoacoustic aspects of a city through transducing artificial light into sound. Um, and that becomes a sort of, uh, avenue for exploring. Um, but yeah, um, let's see what else would be a, a good example of that. Um, well, no, that was very, that very, very much appreciated. And so uh, of course I, I would love to keep talking about it, but I think again, I, I, as I told you, I didn't want to spend this whole interview talking like an architect, but you know, I, I, as I said, my, my background as an architect. So when I think of photovoltaic, I think of panels placed on a roof, possibly a retrofit, and it doesn't usually go much further than that. And so I'd love to talk a little bit more about, you know, again, I, I looking through the architectural applications you showed, I was only familiar with the, the, the media wall, the green picks. I think, the, yeah, the green picks. Besides that, I had not seen any of these other applications. And so I, I think you've made this very successful case that, you know, photovoltaic can be used and can be used quite a bit more integrative and much more aesthetically pleasing than I think how most of us are handling them. 
And so could you could you explain to our viewers, you know, because I here I guess here's let me start with a less vague question. Historic preservation. I would never think about photovoltaic on a historic building. And yet I think there's a very good case study here about how that can be done. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, I think anyone who sort of even paid like a little bit of attention to what we would call the building integrated photovoltaic space um, has, you know, generally been, um, well, either, I think there's maybe two responses. One, you're overwhelmed by what you're being told by marketers or you're underwhelmed by what you're being told by engineers. Um, and, you know, it's been... I mean, the first integrated, uh, you know, building integrated photovoltaic work sort of I technically really happened as early as the 70s. Um, and from the beginning, you know, people have always been proclaiming this like emergence of this huge market for this stuff. Um, and that's never really materialized. So I, I do try in the book to sort of um, say to point out there's a lot of opportunity here, but there's also a lot of um a lot of confusing rhetoric that we get from, from companies and things like that. Um, but I mean, I think the key is as these technologies become more accessible, right? As photovoltaics become cheaper, we don't necessarily need to simply worry about like the highest efficiency applications because then it becomes affordable. And especially if we're using certain BIPV products that potentially replace other architectural elements, which is sort of the standard for BIPV, the idea that um, you're not just applying a photo module, a photovoltaic module to a building, but you're maybe replacing, let's say, an insulation panel with a PV module that also fulfills that insulating function. Um, then you can get to some really interesting use cases that become economically feasible and, and open up interesting design possibilities. Um, I mean, I love the the sort of um, historical preservation applications, because it really speaks to some of these challenges that I don't think we've fully acknowledged, or we certainly haven't addressed them as a society yet around like, what does the climate, what does climate change mean to sort of cultural identity, right? And are there ways to both sort of um, accept that we need this you know, massive infrastructural change to happen, but do it in a way that um, sort of uplifts different cultures and, um, you know, allows people to have this sort of aesthetic cultural connection to the past. Great. And, and again, I, of course, I could talk the whole time about architecture and I don't want, I don't want to do that. And so one thing I often, I actually, that's one thing I always ask uh, when I'm interviewing is, you know, what what's next? What do you see in the future? And you happen to actually have a part of the book dedicated to that. So again, you've, you've mentioned that it's getting cheaper and a little more affordable. And so I guess moving past that, what else do you see in the future of photovoltaics? Sure. So the main thing, I think, to frame any sort of thinking about the future in this space is to just point out that for most of the history of this technology, we've been using silicon-based cells. Um, so if we look at, you know, building applied PV or ground-mounted PV, this is, you know, the standard, the classic, like, dark blue rectangle. That's usually a, a polycrystalline silicon cell, might be a monocrystalline. Um, 
but there are a lot of other technologies. There's also thin film uh, PV technologies that have been around for a while. There's a lot of things that are out there, but they're not necessarily being used um, in in the built environment. Maybe they're being used on satellites. Maybe they're being used in niche applications. But for the most part, um, they remain either too expensive or they're still in sort of a prototyping stage and might not last 20 or 30 years, which is what we sort of look for when we're going to put something on a building, right? So um, as, and this is, you know, maybe similar to BIPV, people have been saying for years and years that um, any day now there'll be, you know, brightly colored solar cells or transparent solar cells. And, and, you know, I think these technologies exist and, but the degree that they're like functional and efficient enough to use is an open question. But I I am optimistic that we are going to start seeing more of that stuff. Um, I know there are a lot of, there are a handful of artists and designers in Europe that over the last maybe five years have been doing really interesting small projects with this stuff. Um, I don't know anyone in North America who's been able to do anything with it just yet. Um, doesn't mean it hasn't happened. I just, I haven't come across it yet. Um, but I'm, I'm, I'm excited for that because I do think for a lot of things, um, there are, you know, so much has been done with a dark blue rectangle that, um, you know, when we can get beyond that, there's a huge, just an unimaginable amount of design possibilities. And, Really, you know, at the end of the day, we need to transform just about every part of our infrastructure to address climate change. And um, it is crucial for us as designers and people who are sort of thinking critically about infrastructure that this transition is sort of aligned with community values and um, is something that is sort of equitable. And I, I mean, my personal belief is that, you know, design is really a crucial aspect of that, right? So um, new design possibilities also, I think, you know, when applied correctly, or maybe correctly is the wrong word, but when new design possibilities, I, I think, create opportunities for more equitability in infrastructure, so... No, absolutely, and, and it, I know the book ends with, uh, with a call to action for artists and designers to start using more PV and being more creative with it than we've been doing. I would agree that North America hasn't probably done as much with this as it should have. Yeah. I mean, I think one thing that is maybe often somewhat misinterpreted when I present my work or my research is I'm not necessarily calling for artists and designers to be more efficient with their electricity because I do think the problems we face are, you know, are are institutional problems, right? I mean, if we basically have the vast majority of the technologies we need to make a huge dent in the climate crisis today, they just haven't been implemented. But what I am calling for is for artists and designers and and architects and, and other people who are doing sort of cultural and technical work sort of simultaneously um, to think about how these technologies can be used holistically and um, in line with uh sort of the cultures that they're being sort of uh, installed into in a way. Great. And like I said, I know we could we could spend a lot of time talking about all these infrastructure changes that we have to do, but I don't want to take up the entire day. So I, I want to thank you again for taking the time to speak with me today. Yeah, of course. I'm, I'm so happy to be here. 
And to all our viewers, listen, to all our listeners listening, you know, thank you very much. The book is uh, History of Solar Power Art and Design. Thank you and have a great day.